We're in John chapter uh, 6. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, or the Scriptures should be up here on the overhead. And uh, continuing our study of John's Gospel, verse by verse, and there's an outline inside your bulletin you can follow with. There are printed messages, the entire manuscript at both exits, and those are online for the last uh, 21 years' worth. And the um, audio are on the church website as well. I'm going to read from verses 22 down to 36. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000 and then the uh, Jesus walking on the water to his disciples, which we looked at last week. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea, that is back in where he had done the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, They themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, uh, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, well, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, I I think the best translation there should be, Sir, they are not believing in Jesus yet. Sir, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. What are you seeking for in life? Well, I think the answer for every single one of us would be happiness, of course. But the key question is, all right, well, where are you seeking that happiness? Some, of course, think they'll find happiness in financial success or a career, and so they're Full bore on that track. Uh, Sadly, there are others who think they'll find happiness in sex, and so they're addicted to pornography or 
They're flying from one partner to the next. Others, as we know, think the answer is in drugs or alcohol, or at least they got hooked on that stuff and think that more and more of it's going to satisfy them. And yet, as you know, they're destroying their lives. Uh, On a more positive note, there are many that think, well, I'll be happy when I get married and have a family. And certainly I am here to testify that a, a happy family is a blessing from God. I am so thankful for my wife and my children. And yet, it can never be the the main source of our happiness because, as you know, death can remove a loved family member instantly. And, as some of you know, families can also be, even Christian families, the source of a lot of pain. And so, that can't be our ultimate uh, source of happiness. Uh, the Bible is, is very clear, Solomon makes it clear in Ecclesiastes, that any earthly thing that you seek to fulfill the inner void within you is kind of like chasing soap bubbles. Vanity, vanity, he says, all is vanity. You grab a soap bubble and it's gone. It's not what you hoped it would be. The ultimate source of our happiness, as you know, the Bible is clear, should be found only in God. David in Psalm 16, verse 11, wrote, In your presence, God, is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 11, He said, These things I have spoken so that... to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And so we find this fullness of joy, these pleasures forever uh, when we seek God. A.W. Tozer begins his uh, classic book, The Pursuit of God, by pointing out that before a man can seek God, God must first have sought the man. And, of course, he's just echoing the Apostle Paul who said in Romans 3.11, there is none who seeks for God. Tozer adds this. He says, we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. And so we can't take any credit for our pursuit of God. And yet at the same time, While God has to put that urge or that desire within us, the Bible very clearly exhorts everyone, even ungodly people, to seek the Lord. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7 cries out to us, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Uh, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And so there's there's a mystery here and we're going to see that more as we work through John chapter 6 and that is that uh, no one can come to God unless or to Jesus, unless God the Father draws him. Jesus will say that in verse 44. And yet at the same time, we are commanded to come to Jesus and to seek him uh, diligently. We begin that quest, of course, by seeking him for the mercy of salvation. That's 
a given. We must come to Him for salvation from our sins. But then we keep seeking Him all of our lives uh, to live in a manner that is pleasing to Him. We want to know more and more of Him. Uh, the prophet Hosea in Hosea 6.3 said, So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And I think the Apostle Paul was thinking of that when in Philippians 3 he mentions how he had counted all things that he formerly had counted gain. He said, now I count those as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And even though Paul had been a believer in Christ for about 25 years when he wrote these words, he admits that he has not yet attained to what he desired. And then he adds this, Philippians 3.14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here's Paul, 25 years into his Christian life. He's not just cruising on autopilot. He's, he's pressing on to know Christ more deeply. Tozer put it like this. He said, come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for Him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for Him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found Him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. And then a couple pages later, he adds, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Now you may say, well, what does that have to do with our text? Well, in our text, in verse 24, we find some people, the people whom Jesus had fed with the loaves and fishes, and and they came to Capernaum, it says, seeking Jesus. They're seeking Him. What happens, John explains in uh, the opening part of our text, where the next morning they get up after they had been fed the miraculous loaves and fishes. They get up, look around for Jesus. They can't find Him. They realize there had only been the boat that the disciples had gotten into, and they left, and Jesus wasn't in the boat. He was there. He then dismissed the crowd. And yet he's not there in the morning. And so they're all looking, where's Jesus? And finally, uh, some boats come over from Tiberias and put in at the shore, perhaps thinking they'll get some um, fares to take back to the other side. And so these people get in, come to Capernaum, and they are looking for Jesus. And when they find him in verse 25, they ask, Rabbi, when did you get here? And I think it shows they can't figure out how did you get here because uh, they can't they can't put it all together. And uh, they just didn't know, of course, that he had walked on the water to the disciples. Uh, It would have been funny, I think, if Jesus had replied, well, I got here by walking on the water to the disciples last night. I got in the boat with them and I arrived here early this morning and I think some jaws would have dropped there on uh, that kind of an answer. But you'll notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question at all. Instead, He confronted them because even though they had gone to a good bit of trouble to seek Him, gotten in the boats, crossed over, looking for Him and all of that, uh, we'll learn they were seeking Him wrongly. It is possible to seek Jesus wrongly. 
They wanted a political Messiah, one who could bring peace and prosperity to them. And uh, this morning I'm going to turn their wrong-seeking on its head and look at how we can seek Jesus rightly. Uh, Three things. First, seek Jesus for the right reason. Uh, Second, seek Jesus by the right route. And then, finally, seek Jesus through the right relationship. And the reason you should seek Jesus is to give you eternal life. Uh, To go back, these Jews were seeking Jesus for the wrong reason. They wanted Him to give them material comfort. They wanted Him to provide a fresh meal every day, free to them, of course. They were not seeking Him for eternal life. We'll see that in verses 22 down through verse 27. Uh, Not only that, they were seeking Jesus by the wrong route. They were seeking Him by works, which was their Jewish mode of operation, and not by faith. We'll see that in verses 28 and 29. And then they were seeking Jesus uh, through the wrong relationship. They wanted Him to be the new Moses, the new political leader who would provide them what they wanted. They were not coming to Jesus as the satisfying bread of life that they could know personally who would give them eternal life. That's in verses 30 to 36. So first let's look at verses 22 to 27, where we learn that we are to seek Jesus for the right reason. And that is to desire eternal food and not temporal food. You notice how Jesus confronts them uh, in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever Jesus says that, perk up your antenna, Tune in, this is important. He says, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He means they missed the point of the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. All of the miracles of Jesus that John records are signs. You're, you're to look beyond the miracle to the lesson involved, the spiritual point of it. And... Um, They uh, should have understood Jesus Christ is our Messiah. He can satisfy our spiritual hunger for time and eternity. But instead, uh, as one commentator put it this way, he said, instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they had seen in the sign only the bread. So their minds were on material things. They thought, wow, if this guy is our king... We've got a ticket to fresh bread on the table every day. He's going to meet our material needs, but they were not focused on their eternal and spiritual needs. And so that's what Jesus confronts them with. They had no sense of their sin, no sense of a need of a Savior. It was like, just feed us and we're happy. That's all we want. Uh, What can Jesus do for us materially? Now, I don't think I need to point out that there is a prevalent heresy in Christendom today that has the same approach. It's been called often the prosperity gospel, health and wealth teaching, whatever. Uh, But it's the idea that it is God's will for every Christian to be financially prosperous. And the false teachers who are promoting this are simply preying on people's greed. That's all they're preying on. 
And from what I have read, I was just online last night reading some blogs and, and response to um, John MacArthur's Strange Fire Conference. And, and uh, one of the uh, bloggers was from Africa and saying, this prosperity gospel is just rampant in Africa through these false teachers who are coming in, telling people, if you'll follow Jesus, you can be rich. And, of course, they're flashing all of their money in front of them. And when you do that, what happens is Jesus becomes your Aladdin's genie. You rub him the right way and he gets you what you want. Hot dog, you put him on the shelf, but he is not then Lord of all. He is not the Lord of your life. He does not confront your sin. He does not become your Savior from sin. And... uh He, of course, does not satisfy your soul. And the Bible is very clear that Jesus is to be the bread of life to us, as we'll see. And you can eat that bread of life whether you're in a nice, comfortable home or, like some of our brothers and sisters this very day, in a cold prison cell. That's what Jesus is all about. And so Jesus exhorts them then in verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father, God, has set His seal. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, He doesn't mean quit your job, take a vow of poverty, and don't pay any attention to your material needs. The Bible is very clear in commending hard work. Uh, The Bible gives a very strong exhortation that says that as husbands and fathers we are to provide for our own families the necessities of life. The Bible commends hard work. Uh, The Bible does not condemn material riches, although it does warn about the dangers of them, but it doesn't say don't have them. Uh, So Jesus isn't saying that. What he is doing is he's By way of contrast, as he often does, he is showing us, here's where you put your focus. It's like when he said in Mark 8.36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, you, you can be the richest man on earth, but if you die and go to hell, what good does all your riches do? And Jesus made that very graphic in that parable in Luke 12 about the Man who said, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns to hold all of my stuff. And, and God says to him, you fool. You know, tonight your soul is required of you. And then who will own all that you have? And Jesus draws the point and says, so is the person who is not rich toward God. You know, if you die poor toward God and rich in the world, that was a bad decision. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here is, Where do you put your focus? Don't put your focus so much on getting food on the table that you forget. You've got to provide food for your soul and as a a husband and father for your family's soul. Now, I'll comment more on this when we look at verses 28 and 29, but I want you to notice the irony in Jesus' statement here where he says, work for the food that endures to eternal life, and yet at the same time, he says, the Son of Man gives it to us. It's a gift. So there's a tension there. There's an irony there. 
It's kind of like when Jesus in Luke 13:24 exhorted his hearers, he said, "Strive to enter in at the narrow gate." Um, he's talking about salvation there. Or in Matthew 11:12, he says, "From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force." Now, there's a lot of effort involved in striving and in taking the kingdom by force. And yet we know that it's a gift that God gives to us. He gives the living water to the woman at the well. He says here that He gives uh, Himself as the bread of life to everyone who will come to Him. And so it is a free gift. So you say, well, what does it mean then when Jesus says to work for, for the food which endures to eternal life? Uh, J.C. Ryle, I think, sums it up well. He says it this way. How are we to labor? There's but one answer. We labor in the use of all appointed means. We must read our Bibles like men digging for hidden treasure. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with a deadly enemy for life. We must take our whole heart to the house of God and worship and hear like those who listen to the reading of a benefactor's will. Is that how you go to church? Is there something in it for me? You know, that's how we would listen to the reading of the will, wouldn't it? Hear my name. And what's in it for me? He continues, We must fight daily against sin, the world, and the devil, like those who fight for liberty and must conquer or be slaves. These are the ways we must walk in if we would find Christ and be found of Him. This is laboring. This is the secret of getting on about our souls. Uh, I like Ryle. He doesn't mince words. He always just cuts to the, the quick and he, he's no nonsense. But just uh, maybe pick up the printed notes and take that paragraph home and chew on it and evaluate your own life in light of it. What is it that I need to do in order to labor for the food that doesn't perish? And that might mean rearranging your priorities and your schedule so that Each day you spend time in God's Word and in prayer and that sort of thing. But make the time and the effort to work for the food that endures to eternal life. That's the point. Now, before we leave these verses, I just wanted to point out three important truths about Jesus here. The first one is, Jesus knows your motives. He knew their motives. He could read them like a book when they showed up. Uh, Oh, there you are! And he cuts right through it and says, you're not seeking me for the right reason. Does it cause you to be a bit disconcerted that Jesus knows your every motive? But it's a loving thing on his part. When he confronts your motive, and he does this through the Word, you know, in Hebrews it says, the Word of God uh, is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So it's through the Word. You're reading the Word, and it goes, boom, and it hits you. And you go, ah, that, that is I. That is describing me. Well, when it does that, don't dodge it. Repent of what it's confronting you with, and that's how you grow. And remember, the Lord never does it to be mean. He always does it out of love because He knows that sin destroys us 
and he wants us to grow in godliness. The second truth here about Jesus is that he gives spiritual food to those who seek him properly. Now, Jesus could not make these claims in the verses we have read unless he were God. He has to be God to be able to know what we need spiritually and say, I can give that to you. And I am the one who will satisfy you if you will come to me. And uh, he will do that. And then that is the third truth here, that Jesus is God's only approved source of spiritual blessing. He says there at the end of verse 27, For on Him, that is on the Son of Man, on Himself, Jesus, the Father God has set His seal. Now in that day, a seal authenticated something, and it showed that the owner approved of the document, if you put your seal on it in the wax. And uh, the idea here. D.A. Carson explains, he says, the idea is that God has certified the Son as His own agent, authorizing Him as the one alone who can bestow this food. And so any teaching that diminishes the full deity of Jesus is not biblical teaching. Run from it. Uh, Jesus Christ promises that He is the bread of life He can give you life spiritually. He can sustain that life. And either it's a lie or it's true. you got to decide. I choose that it's true and believe that He is what we need. So, first of all, seek Jesus then for the right reason. That you desire spiritual food that will last to eternity. Uh, You're not coming to Him just for the temporal Secondly, seek Jesus by the right route, and that is by faith and not by works. And here we're focused on verses 28 and 29. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Their question, I mean, Jesus' words on... uh, don't work for the food which perishes, causes them to ask this question. Well then, uh, what do we do to work the work of God? Uh, By the works of God, John Calvin explains, he says, by the works of God we must understand those which God demands and of which He approves. And so, Jesus again here is using irony. Uh, He doesn't mean that faith is some sort of a meritorious work that we produce that gains as brownie points with God. That's not what he's teaching. The Bible is clear, in fact, that faith itself is a gift from God to us. But Jesus here is picking up on their question about works, and he's saying, in effect, here's the only work that you can do, and that is not to work. The only work you can do is to believe in me, the one whom the Father has sent and believe in my death and my resurrection as the provision for your souls. Calvin, again, explains it this way. He says, Now faith brings nothing to God, but on the contrary, places man before God as empty and poor, that he may be filled with Christ and with His grace. It is therefore, if we may be allowed the expression, a passive work, to which no reward can be paid, and it bestows on man 
no other righteousness than that which he receives from Christ. Now, I would say that trying to seek God by works and not by faith is far and beyond the most common spiritual error in the entire world. It is the wrong route to seek God, and yet every major religion, including some that go under the banner of Christianity, teaches that the way you are right with God is by being a better person, by adding your good works, and eventually the scale tips and you somehow get into heaven. Uh, some teach, well, you're saved by faith, but not by faith alone. You've got to add your works to faith. And, of course, the question then is, uh, excuse me, how many good works do I have to add until it's scale tips? And how can works erase my sin? You know, they can't. You go before the judge and uh, you're, you're accused of murder and uh, rape and all sorts of crimes, terrible crimes. And, and you say, but judge, I help little old ladies across the street, you know, and... Judge, I, I serve at the soup kitchen once a week, and I'm a good person. Uh, sorry, are you guilty of the crimes? And if you are, those good works mean nothing. You know, that you're guilty. And all of us have broken God's holy law over and over and over again. And so, the Bible is clear, when you are saved by faith alone... Saving faith results in a life of good works. If you have no works, your faith was probably not genuine. But you are saved by faith alone. Here's a key verse on it. Paul put it this way in Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, he said, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, Notice, but believes in him who justifies not the good person, not the person who's really trying hard to to add up the good works, but we believe in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. And so to seek Jesus as the food that endures to eternal life, you come to him as a guilty, helpless sinner, You say, God, I I realize I have violated your holy law over and over again, and there's no way I can justify myself. But your son Jesus died in my place on the cross, and I come and I entrust myself to him. Now, let me be clear on what that trust involves. It's the same trust you would put in a pilot when you get on the airplane. Have you ever gotten on an airplane and said, excuse me, I need to go into the cockpit and help the pilot fly this baby? You know, and I've never had a flying lesson in my life. You know, they'd say, get this nut off the plane. I mean, he's going to cause us to crash. He he doesn't know what he's doing. And and it's just as ridiculous to say, uh, you know, let me help you out, Jesus, with your work on the cross. I've got some good works to add to what you did that will make me right. No, no. You get on the plane. You trust Jesus totally. And His work on the cross, satisfying the holiness, the righteousness of God, paying the penalty that you were due to pay by yourself, He paid, and you receive that as a free gift by faith alone. The Apostle Paul 
when he was speaking to the Philippian jailer, gave it very clear, Acts 16.31, he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. Here's a pagan man, military man, I'm sure like many military men, he was a man of foul mouth, a man of violence. What must I do to be saved? Paul doesn't say, you know, clean up that foul mouth, stop treating the prisoners wrongly. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And that's for every single one of us. So, there is nothing more important in life than to seek for Jesus for the eternal life that he came to bring. And the right way to seek for Jesus is for the right reason. That is, I need him for my eternal food. I need him for the eternal life he came to give, primarily. Sure, he'll meet our temporal needs, but that's secondary. And I need to seek him by the right route, and that is by faith and not by works. But then finally, seek Jesus also through the right relationship, and that is hunger for Jesus to be the one to satisfy your soul. And that's in verses 30 through 36. It's incredible. Just the day before, Jesus fed 20,000 or so people with five loaves and two fish, And they come to him in verse 30 and they ask this incredible question. These are people that had eaten the loaves and the fish. What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they go on to mention that their fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Now what's going on is there was a Jewish expectation that when the Messiah came, he would reinstitute the miracle of the manna. And so even though Jesus has fed the the 20,000 to demonstrate He is their Messiah, they're asking for more in effect. They're saying, well, yeah, you fed 20,000, but Moses fed a couple of million people in the wilderness. And yeah, you gave us one meal, but Moses did it for 40 years in the wilderness. And uh, yeah, you gave us that lousy barley bread, but uh, Moses gave us the bread from heaven. So, in effect, they're saying, all right, Jesus, that was a start, but come on, do a big one for us, you know, and then we'll believe. In other words, give us more evidence. It's an incredible question. And that wasn't the only miracle, by the way, they'd seen, because the other Gospels record how, as Jesus had that multitude there, he healed their sick, which he was doing all over the Galilee at that time. But um, J.C. Ryle, again, has a very astute comment. He says, They were always deceiving themselves with the idea that they wanted more evidence and pretending that if they had this evidence, they would believe. Thousands in every age do just the same. The plain truth is that it is lack of heart, not lack of evidence, that keeps people back from Christ. And so Jesus responds by correcting them in verses 32 and 33. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. He's speaking about himself. 
So first of all, he's saying, Moses didn't give you guys the manna. God did. Moses was just the agent. And then he's saying, secondly, the manna wasn't the true bread because everybody that ate that bread died in the wilderness. Uh, and so the bread, the, tr- the true bread is the bread that gives you eternal life. And uh, he says, uh, Jesus is the true bread whom God sent, who gives life to the world, that is, to all people everywhere who believe in him. Now, I think you have to interpret the Jews' response in verse 34 as still focused on the temporal. Like the woman at the well who wanted the water. Well, yeah, but she just didn't want to have to come to the well and and draw water. She wanted literal water. Jesus was offering spiritual water. Here, they say, and as I said when I read it, I think sir is the best translation. Sir, always give us this bread. The reason I say that is verse 36. Jesus again knows their heart, and he, he points out they are not believing in him. And, and so they're wanting Jesus to be their meal ticket. Hey, yeah, I'll sign up for free bread every day. Yeah, here I am. And then Jesus gives them this great answer in verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, I can't comment on that very long this morning, but let me just in passing say, what an astounding claim. Could any mere man say that to a multitude of people? If you come to me, I will satisfy you with myself for time and for eternity. I mean, it's incredible. And, and it's the first of seven I am metaphors in the Gospel of John. Uh, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Uh, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. Um, But what an astounding claim. Jesus is saying, I am both the source of life and the sustainer of life for everyone who comes to me and believes in me. Now, these Jews were satisfied with their religion and their rituals. We've got Moses. You know, that's what they're into is following Moses. And uh, so they have no hunger for this living bread that Jesus comes to offer. You know, before you eat of the living bread, God has to open your eyes to say, you know what? I'm really hungry. I am spiritually starved. And there's nowhere else to get this that I need except in Jesus. God has to open your eyes to see your need. And in that day, see, bread was the main staple This was pre-gluten days, okay? (laughs) Nobody knew about gluten then. So everybody ate bread. And that was the main meal at every meal is the bread. And, And you couldn't live without bread. And Jesus is saying, you can't live eternally in my presence, in God's presence, without me. I am the bread of life. And Jesus was sent to this world by the Father to bear the sins of all who will believe in him so that we now can be in God's presence and be sustained. Um, Coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are parallel here. There's two ways of explaining the same thing. And when we get down to verse 53 and Jesus gets a little more graphic and he says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood 
He's going back to this. What he means is, you've got to believe in me. That's what that means. That Jesus is the final payment for your sins. When he says you won't hunger and you won't thirst, he doesn't mean that there won't be more of the Lord that you desire as a believer. Paul, we saw, saw that. He, he still sought for more and more and more of the Lord. David, the same thing. His soul panted after the Lord until he was with the Lord. But it means this. When you believe in Christ, there's a basic satisfaction in your soul. You just know, thank God, I'm right with God through faith. And you're not at unrest anymore. You're at rest in God's presence through the blood of Jesus. The Bible says in Him, in Christ, we have all spiritual blessings. In Him, we are complete. That's what it means that we will never hunger and never thirst. So sadly, these Jews came seeking Jesus, but they were doing it for the wrong reason. They wanted Him to meet their material needs, not their spiritual needs. They were seeking Jesus by the wrong route, by works, not by faith. And they were seeking Him through the wrong relationship. They wanted Him to be the new Moses, the new political leader who would uh, provide peace and prosperity. But they didn't want to come to Him personally in faith to satisfy the hunger of their souls and to reconcile them to a holy God. And so the tragedy in verse 36 is they had seen Him, and yet they didn't believe in Him. So let me close by just coming back to my original question. What are you seeking in life? Well, I'm seeking happiness. Okay, where are you seeking it? Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our, our souls, both in this life and for eternity. And uh, certainly He will provide for our temporal needs, but that's not our main need. Our main need is spiritual, to come to Him and to seek Him rightly. It occurs to me, too, there might be somebody here who isn't seeking Jesus at all. You're not seeking Him. You're getting on about life, but Jesus is somewhere out there and He's not anywhere on the radar. I just have to say, you're a heartbeat away from standing in judgment before a holy God. And Jesus will be your only plea when you stand there. So you've got to seek Him. Cry out to God to open your eyes. And the Bible promises, Jesus promises, come to Him and you'll never hunger. Believe in Him and you'll never thirst. Father, I pray that we would put the Lord Jesus front and center in our focus, in our daily pursuit, even when we're at work, at school, doing chores, driving, whatever we're doing, that Christ would be, as we sang, our all in all. I would ask, Lord, if there are any here who don't know Jesus in a saving way, that they would realize their sin condemns them, but that Christ offers full pardon to all who will trust Him and that they would flee to Christ even today, that they would get on the plane, so to speak, and trust in Jesus alone to be the one who can reconcile them between you and your holiness and them in their sin. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.